Hi, I'm Dan Cottrell, editor of Rugby Coach Weekly. You're about to jump into one of our podcasts. If you want to find out more about this podcast and also all of the great content, drills, activities, games and advice on the website, then go over to www.rugbycoachweekly.net. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Be the best rugby coach you can be. Welcome to Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast with head coach Dan Cottrell, where you learn hints and tips from the rugby coaching community. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast with me, Dan Cottrell. I'm delighted to welcome to the show, Kevin Mulcahy. So welcome to the show, Kevin. Thanks, Dan. It's great to be on. Well, I'm uh, looking forward to uh, picking your brains because um, I know you're very passionate about coaching and um, styles of coaching and the way that you coach and some of the journeys you've been on. And um, so I'm just going to start by asking you to just give us a little bit of background to um, where you are and how you got there. Cool. Um, uh, I'm, I grew up and I'm from and now living in uh, very close to Ballincollig in Cork. Cork City is the bigger city in the south of Ireland, uh, second biggest city in Ireland. Um, so I would have grown up in quite a strong Gaelic Games, but uh, Cork would be kind of a quite a broad sporting city where soccer and basketball as well as hurling football and rugby would have been quite strong in popularity at, um, and in participation. Uh, so I grew up, uh, started coaching quite young, uh, started delving into it at 16 uh, with kids and helping out other coaches, heavily influenced by my hurling and football coach growing up. There were two guys who stayed with us pretty much from eight to 18. Um, uh, so they kind of introduced me to coaching and, and also encouraged me once I kind of started. So that would have been the, the launching pad. Like most other coaches, I would have copied everything they did and copied everything I'd seen. Uh, and so I took stuff from school, from them, and then from other coaches as we went. Uh, like, like basically, I think nearly any coach starts. We stick to what we know at the start, and then maybe we expand after that. So uh, I didn't initially, I, I worked out of leaving cert. I didn't go to college, even though I got courses. I worked for two or three years. I really didn't know what I wanted to do. In fact, I probably didn't really know absolutely what I wanted to do till well into my 30s. But um, worked in building sites, drove trucks, uh, because my dad was in that kind of world. So I did that for a while. And then I went back to college as a mature student. Uh, I did community college for a year. And then as a mature student, went to a college. And I was in the sports injury and sports development area. Um, and in the middle of that, two years into a degree, I got sidetracked by a summer job in a pharmaceutical company and ended up in that industry, uh, did a degree in training development in the uh, production industry, let's say. Um, and I ended up in that world for five or six years. Um, and at some point along the line, I realized it was more of the progression and the jobs I was getting and the, maybe the status of them or the promotion in the, within them that was keeping me going. I actually really ended up disliking the industry uh, quite a lot. You know, took me a while to figure that out. But um, and then I did 
did a bit of traveling. I've lived basically in Australia, America, and, and Ireland, obviously. Uh, spent a fair bit of time traveling around and uh, Europe as well, but mostly Ireland, Australia, and America. And at some point, I started a strength and conditioning degree in Ireland um, around about 2008. All that time, whether it might have been soccer in America, it might have been uh, Gaelic football and hurling at home, a little bit of soccer, I was coaching. And I had fitness qualifications, so I took up multiple different roles over the years uh, and started. And, you know, when you work with a local club, if you coach the under-18 team, like, there's no fitness coach anyway. You, you know, you're doing everything. And that would have even been the case with our senior team. Um, so... I worked with under eight to senior first team, basically. Um, and most of my coaching up to around time going to America would have been with my own home club. So that's where uh, it was all volunteer work, obviously. And I really started gaining an interest. I think I did the SNC degree to get better at coaching, funnily enough, looking back. It wasn't necessarily to be a strength and conditioning coach, which is what I am now and what's my bread and butter now. But I gained an interest in it and I started to love that area of development and went to Australia, which was a big uh, kind of catapult for me in terms I got really lucky in some of the jobs I got over there with low professional experience. I managed to work with an AFL, uh, sorry, a Waffle WAFL club, which is pro, semi-pro kind of level um, and also worked in numerous other sports. And that kind of introduced me to a higher level athlete and new ideas and different challenges and all that kind of stuff. So then I came home to Ireland about seven, eight years ago, and I decided, like, I'm going full time into this. Um, and I came home and set up. And since then, I work with the general public a bit, you know, doing strength and conditioning with regular people, for want of a better description. <laughs> you could term it personal training if you wanted, whatever. It's just getting people healthier, fitter, stronger you know, lead better lives, all that kind of stuff. A little bit of performance coaching with, with professionals. Well, a lot of it then, it's probably 60, 70% now is with individual athletes and teams. Um, and my roles vary. I generally try to keep it to two winter sports, two summer sports. Uh, basketball and soccer was the winter sports just gone, uh, where we're both very SNC supportive roles. Whereas I'm a head coach of a Gaelic football, senior football team here now and in a more supportive role with a hurling team. So, and that's been the cycle for the last six, seven years. Okay, so we're going to talk generally about sports and team sports. Um, and obviously this is a rugby coaching podcast, but um, pretty much all the things that we're going to discuss are going to be applicable across team sports and in invasion games in, in particular um though inevitably some things are going to uh, cross over between different sports so i'm going to go straight in with uh, and you talked about the general public but i'm not sure if the general public necessarily fit into this how much has your team coaching approach changed when you're dealing with experts and then when you're dealing with novices at a base level, I think it's the same in that, let's say, if we were to use the self-determination theory as something to lean on, right, as a kind of a guide, I'm not saying it's to be all an end all, but it is a good guide that humans are humans at the end of the day. You know, 
what a, you know, they want to be competent at what they're doing. They want to be involved in the process and they want to feel part of the team. And that's what competency, autonomy and relatedness means really uh, within the self-determination uh, framework. So I think that applies to kids as it does to youth, as it does to pro sports. Now, what that means for them, though, varies widely. And funnily enough, uh, and I'm not talking out of school in any way here, like, let's say, the hurling team and the football team that I work with, they, they mirror each other in culture and hard work and, you know, honesty and all that a lot. But there's just little, I have to act differently, even between the two of them. Uh, whereas one is a bit more hard-ass, hard-nosed, you know, work till you drop kind of a approach. And I'm trying to balance that, right? So I do have to, even within, say, high level, and they're both senior teams, I have to adjust a bit left and right there with, with those two, right? Um, with kids, you know, I mean, the questions really we should always be asking is, are they finding it enjoyable and are they coming back? Okay. Now, of course, a sports pro is coming back, but like, is he coming back 100% psychologically bought in? and willing to give everything to himself and the team and, 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 and everything else. That's it. So, you know, players as they get older and, and are still playing and want to be high-level achievers, like, they want to be challenged, okay? So that's fun for them. So that's where I would say the eight-year-old versus the adult pro is, you know, can we, can we decide on what fun is? Do you know what I mean? And, of course, like, asking them is... is is one of the most important things. Uh, and then observing and learning and listening, you know, uh, like a kid, you know, autonomy to eight-year-olds is like, lads, what's your favorite game to play uh, at the start of a session? And they might say, tag. And we go, great, let's play that. So there's there's an, an autonomy there, like we're, we're involving you in the process. And we're going to play a tie. Now, there might be other stuff in the session we want to do that you might not like, like as much, but hell, we're going to get you engaged and laughing and chasing and, you know, and the other stuff will be easier to deal with then or to, to get you engaged in, right? So, But, uh, but don't you yeah. find, say, with uh, eight-year-olds and nine-year-olds that uh, you are, you'll ask them a question and uh, some of the kids, you, you haven't even finished answering, asking the question and they'll have a hand up ready to give you the answer. And... Their, their answers are not reflective. Um, sometimes they're based mm. on what you did last week because they haven't, they haven't thought back and there's lots of good reasons why they thought back. And um, some of their answers are based on information which it doesn't really make sense. They're playing a game which is, you, you know in your heart of hearts, isn't really helping them and they may enjoy it, but it's, it's not a game which is going to move them on. It's a game that you might use for a couple of minutes to get them on is there um is there a way that we can approach maybe and i'm thinking about the novices in particular to help them come up with better answers without taking away from their autonomy um i think getting you have to learn the personalities or the characters a certain amount like some will tell you stuff in little groups where they're beside their friends uh maybe over time you play you know, if we were to look at, say, the Belgian model, which I've expanded to use at all levels, even, uh, you know, uh, high levels, let's say, um, 
where we can kind of put guys who are weak, weaker or maybe slower developers with each other um, and then take the opportunities to talk to them. So you might get information from the strong character who's really confident uh, in front of the group immediately. But then it's up to a coach to go like, is, is he drowning out the rest of the opinions? You know, and, and then you choose who you talk to and you might say, look, lads, I'm going to ask Johnny today, uh, what's his favorite game? Or, you know, whatever the case may be. I think that, that just takes a bit of consideration and time um, I don't overthink it at the start and I encourage coaches not to I work with some coaches as well in terms of mentoring and, and coach education stuff here and there like see what happens a little bit like we don't know what's always going to emerge um, you know clubs let's say in rural Ireland like I'll talk about what I know best let's say right so rural Ireland versus urban Ireland Gaelic clubs GA clubs as we call them right in the rural club I work in, that I'm the senior football coach, they all go to the same primary school. Okay? So they, they know each other intimately, and that can have massive benefits. But it can also mean that the politics of the schoolyard come with us all the way. Right? So we have to be conscious of that. That's a different ball game. Whereas in the city, you know, one of the city clubs I work with, they have kids coming from all over the place. Right? And there's a different set of politics there. You know, the, the people who've been in the club, their granddads are in the club. That seems to be a thing that emerges in the city Gaelic clubs I have seen where they have a certain uh, higher status almost because my dad played with them. And mm. You know what I mean? So I think sometimes we have to observe and let things emerge. And then just get clever about how are we going to break them? And it's not, as we have to be very careful, I think, as well of, putting them into weaker groups or any groups for too long. You know, we could do it for certain sections of a training session uh, within a bigger cycle of a month or something like that. And then let them mix and see, you know, are these people going two steps up? Um, you know, so, and, and then constantly like observing and questioning um, and finding, and look, it might be a parent to tell you, a very considerate parent might say, look, my Johnny is, not great at expressing himself, but he has been saying this at home. And then, look, that's brilliant information, and you you've a way to talk to Johnny. Then you know. So what? So just um, just going back to the start of this, uh, can you just tell a little bit more about the Belgium model? I think you've sort of alluded to it, but I just want to know a little bit more detail about that. So basically, what they've come up with at a very practical level, what they do is have small goals and. 1v1s uh, with two goalies and they work up over time over six, seven, eight years old. It's part of the training session. I'm sure they put in loads of other stuff as well, right? Um, and they play movement games and they, they fatten out their sessions with many other things. But the basic concept is that you can put people of, maybe they divide, this is up to the individual coaches and groups, but you could divide it up into, you know, people born in the last three months of the year, first three months of the year and have the rest in the middle. Uh, there might be some obvious early developers. You put them together. They play 1v1s. They get a bit of a break. There's lots of touches. You're playing the sport. Um, you know, massive opportunities to score goals. Kids love scoring goals. And, and you're not 
frightening away. I think one of the big things is you're not frightening away one of the kids. Sorry, one of the slower developers are younger because we know like a kid born in December that's under seven versus a kid born in January that can be up to two biological years or even more of a, a development difference, right? So it's avoiding losing those kids who get demoralized early. Um, and then they bring it up. So it's also heavily weighted upon whatever research they could get out of development, creativity, and where kids are at at different ages. So there's a certain amount of selfishness associated with the one v ones And their thinking is, you know, they want the ball on their own. So literally, and I've heard Chris Van de Hagen talk about it, like they're so selfish that they fight hard for the ball in a one v one situation, right? But then you can layer in teamwork, 2v2s, 3v3s, then we're actually maybe eight or nine. We're starting to think about positioning, technical, passing, giving and going, and being a pivot man, you know, which we know is so important in, in many field sports. So without ever talking about strategy or tactical awareness, they're actually getting somewhat slightly aware of those through playing the game and, and learning the movements of the game. So when you talk about, say, uh, a pivot player and uh, speaking as someone who knows a little bit about football but not much about football, I would be regard myself as a novice in that sense. Um, how, how would you introduce that to a novice player, given that they uh, haven't got much knowledge of the game? Um, it's not going to emerge from them playing for a long time. You're going to have to give them some direction here. I, I might be wrong in that, but how, how is that novice player going to get an idea of the importance of a pivot player? Just, just, and also maybe just help those who, like me, not quite sure exactly what a pivot player is. Okay, so, um, you know, holy midfielder might be the best old school description of the pivot player. Um, moves with the play and stays behind the play generally and can shift the ball left to right or right to left. Right. But is also in Gaelic football and hurling, for instance, we have very big pitches. And one of the things is that we coach defensives to push people out to the line. And I think that's the way in many sports. Although rugby, obviously, is different because you're going to an end line, which is the full width of the pitch, right? So we're obviously going to a narrow goals, which is slightly different. So you get clogged up down, uh, down the, the right-hand corner attacking the goals, you're in with a big chance of being turned over, okay? So we would coach adult players in particular, obviously, or, you know, competitive players to have an out ball so that we can pivot the ball out and switch the play or pass it off to someone running through the middle. At a very basic level where you might introduce that or see it emerge, right? So again, I wouldn't have any preconceived ideas of how I need to coach anyone in this instance, right? So we could play 3v3 games which automatically create these triangles, okay? You just see it emerging. It's, it's amazing. Uh, it might take longer with some kids or depending on the age. You play 3v3, they'll, one of them at least, and then they'll all, there's a peer learning effect that happens. They'll start being the pivot player. Someone will drop back to pass and move the ball. Um, at a bigger level, I would play a lot of games at all levels where... Uh, we would use the wings deliber very deliberately. So we may have wing players where the ball has to go out there in, in, before we can score, right? It's a very deliberate practice. But 
that what that means then is often you'll see guys go out to the wing to get the ball back, right? Um, so then you see what emerges and see who's struggling with it would be my approach. And, you know, first thing to do those is to try and find out their knowledge or understanding of it. Now, for me, understanding really is performance actions. You know, and when I say performance with nine-year-olds, we're talking about mini game we're playing or with adults and our competitive athletes, we're talking about how they play in the competition or championship. But some players will be able to tell you what you want, but still may not be performing the actions, right? So then you have to try and use clever questioning as much as you can to get them to give you the answer, right? And there's all sorts of learning stuff there, like trying to get them to elaborate on what they mean, um, you know, retrieve you may have talked about it openly as a team like we're talking about the pivot player here lads what that means is getting behind the play and be ready to shift the play so you can be quite deliberate in expressing that and you can introduce the idea and wait for two weeks to bring it up again um and that you know maybe that retrieval practice will help them uh, or maybe you need to help them again and, and give it to them again it will vary widely from player to player age to age group to group experience you know, what town or village they're from, what other sports they're involved in, what other coaches they're being exposed to, you know, like in Gaelic Games, for instance, like you really, really notice it. I notice a real difference with the guys who get to go to good Gaelic Games schools. If they're going to one of the competitive uh, A or B schools, they're mixing with other kids anyway from other school, from, from other clubs for one thing. Uh, and whether it's good coaching or not, it doesn't necessarily always be, but there's just a culture within these uh, of challenge and sharing naturally uh, at those ages. So you'll find they'll pick up things a lot faster than maybe someone who plays with a good Gaelic club, but actually goes to rugby school, you know? So it's just little varies like that, that you're always kind of learning about yourself as a coach because you're talking and you're going, he has a clue what I'm talking about, but I thought he might. You know, so we can be surprised day in, day out about what they do know and what they don't know. It's so I think questioning, open mind, and listening really is it never changes from seven year olds to professional. Like, I've been flabbergasted by a lack of knowledge with all stars, people who played all star hurling and football. Like, the best of the best have represented Ireland against the Aussies and compromise rules, like that level. Uh, brilliant athletes, like amazing athletes, amazing in game intelligence and all that, but like they may not even understand basic principles of play. They just were so good and learned the game in, in their world that they weren't that conscious of everything else that was going on. So uh, if they're so brilliant, why do they need to know the principles of play? I think clever coaching, right, they, they probably do understand the principles of play to a large degree, to be fair, right? But it's extracting that and letting them understand the rest of the teams. Uh, like, if we have principles of play as a team, say, let's say we just have three basic ones, right? Attacking, defending, and transition. We're, we're just going to transition fast, lads, right? Uh, and we're attack, we're going to try and create space, and then defensively, we're going to block up space. I mean, you could do that with under 13, under 15, um, start introducing that. And you could be years developing that. But like, if you got good at understanding those three basic principles, like everybody's going to be a little bit better. 
Okay. Um, so how do you get them to understand it? I mean, um, there, there, there could, there's, there's several different approaches. I mean, you, we could say, as we've just said it now, you've just told me that those uh, in attack uh, create space, space. So I could go to the team and say, right, we're going to work on the first principle of attack. And our first principle of attack is we're going to create space. Uh, over to you, how do you create space? Or we're going to create space. Uh, here are some exercises which I think are going to help us create space. Or, uh, right, um, we're going to create space by doing this, this, and this, and this, and we're going to drill this. I mean, there's three possible approaches. Yeah. Um, don't they all come out to the same in the, the same in the end? Yeah. Um, I think you will get there if the motivation is there to learn, right? Um, and many people will come come to the where you want them to be in terms of the team strategy um, in man, multiple different ways, right? But we obviously want it to be optimum and accelerated as best we can, okay? So generally, I think, like, if we're to look at sport, invasion sports, I'm stealing from, I'm sure this is around for a long time, but Marco Sullivan has uh, kind of put this nicely in recent times and uh, in that we can basically in sport go through a team, go around a team or go over a team, okay? And I'll play, if I'm new with a team, I, I'll, I won't talk too deeply. I might present on the principles of attack and defense and transition, very basically at the start of the season, just a chat, whiteboard chat or, or whatever. Okay. Um, again, that's just introducing concepts. I don't know how much they know about it or how obvious it is to them or whatever. Okay. And then we'll play games very broadly, building up fitness and general, a uh, general approach to skill development and, you know, getting back into the game with games that are true around or over questions. So the games ask questions about, uh, and then I will ask game to game. You know, what's this game about? What are we trying to achieve here? You know, and their answering will inform me very often what I need to work more on. But, but obviously watching it, then you have to be patient. You know, it's like my general feeling after all these years coaching is that if I introduce a new game or even a new strategy or a new tactic or new skill, right, there's no point in really assessing much about it until you've done it at least four times. Right, because and my study of learning would would tally a bit with that. Right, that there's a familiarization with a game, there's the understanding, there's a sleeping on it, there's trying to remember it the next time we do it, um, and there's just a learning patterns of play and figuring things out. Um, and all that time I'm asking questions. Right now, that said, sometimes there will be blank stares. Okay. And sometimes I have to give it, okay? Because there is cultures you may walk into or age groups you may walk into where, and I'm not saying this is a bad thing, but where they've been told everything, verbalized, right? Do A, B, and C. And that will get you so much with certain types of players, right? So they're standing there looking at you. I might go, guys, what's the most important thing about attacking? Like, how are we going to score easy goals? Uh, when I say easy, you know, what's the most, uh, what's the best way to create goals? And it's very, very rare someone says create space. 
right? Uh, they might say move the ball fast, right? They kind of seem to understand that, right? But it's very rare. To, so I have to create these. So I might have to say, well, we need to create space. Or someone might give me an answer telling me that, but he might not use the word space. He might read or she might say, well, if he's over there and I'm over here and I get one-on-one, -on -one, I have a better chance of scoring. And he'll go, well, you've created one-on-one -on -one because there's loads of space, there's no defenders. And so, like, there's no formula, really, other than having an open mind, listening and asking questions. But you have to have, you have, to have answers there for them then, though, because that approach is a dangerous line in them kind of thinking you're bluffing or not able to give them answers, you know? So like when I'm in a group, sometimes I have to change my mind halfway through chatting or, you know, uh, observing a game or, or discussing a game. So my aim usually is I'm happy enough to do a fair amount of chatting and talking early season. Uh, I prefer their talking more, but that my voice dissipates more and more and more as the year goes on. Um, and, and like where that starts and ends, is, it, it's really hard to know because every team is different. They really are. So going back to uh, thinking about autonomy and reflecting on something, um, and a very experienced coach I know who's working at a top school says that some of my players don't want autonomy. Uh, they just want to make some very basic low-level decisions on where what's happening in front of them they're not think they don't want to make uh, big game changing decisions uh, in it and so when i'm asking them questions they are not very comfortable with it they don't want it they'll be much happier just to be saying right go there go there go there um and you've got another group of players who need to be challenged want to be challenged that's why they're there so I'm just thinking about the under nine who you're asking a question. I know that uh, you're very careful. And when I say you, one, we are very careful to make sure that we're not putting the players under pressure. But I, I just wonder if there's a sense now that we are asking more questions. We are giving players more autonomy, which is great. But there are going to be a group of players who are coming along and they don't want that autonomy. They just love being with the rest of everybody else. They want to be pointed in the right direction and they don't want to be making mistakes because that's not something that they feel comfortable with. So there's a balance here and I'm not quite sure uh, where sometimes I need to go with that idea that I'm going to give the players far more say in what happens and what they do. Absolutely. I think that's what I was talking to earlier. I mean, ultimately, uh, this would be a common coaching line we'd have heard, both of us, I'm sure, in the last few years, is meet them where they're at. You know, if I have six guys in a soccer team who want information and don't want to be asked questions, then I'm wasting my time asking them questions. You know, and I might, I might ask questions to find that out, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> the blank stares sometimes tell you a lot you know and um so I, you do have to uh you know it takes time that's the thing like it's not like i could ask a series of six questions at the first training session like if i assume which is the mother of all f-ups as we know mm. right that the answers that i get in the first training session is the temperament and knowledge of the team then i'm in big trouble 
right? So many people, and I'd probably be like this myself in certain areas. I'd stand back and watch a coach for so, four sessions to see if he is a bluffer. And then I'd start asking questions. Or You know what I mean? So there might be characters like that in a group. And there are people then in a group, no matter what age, who just want to play the game. Um, and our own principles of play, I suppose, do you want to stitch back to that a little bit? Yeah. You know, if we have a game plan, a strategy, or whatever the case may be, I, you know, I have role cards or I give roles to certain players. I might have specialist roles, but we'll have general position like you play fullback, you play in goal. Mm. You know, there's broad principles around that. And I just help them with little one to three points around that. But very often that role card will say, play it as you see it. So, and they can often be creative, but they might also be cranky players who just don't want me telling them what to do, you know? And if I can get them happy going onto the pitch, or there's other players, if I can get them cranky going onto the pitch, uh, they'll perform for the team, you know? So look, it's kind of kick up the arse, slap in the back in the old school language in ways. It, it, it's the same for a lot of these discussions and, you know, we have to we have to meet the character where they're at, and we can't expect everybody to follow what our ideal, you know, scenarios are because it might be a journey. And I think, look, there's a lot of research, but I think personally, everybody wants some autonomy. But like that's autonomy for that person at that time. We're letting them make decisions for themselves, and it might be I don't want any information. That's my decision, you know. So it's figuring that out, like. So given what you've just said about uh, giving autonomy and letting the players be uh, themselves, and um, I'm just interested to know what your definition of cranky is uh, opposed to mine. Uh, so we'll come, to, we'll come to that in a moment. But yeah. there, certainly in rugby, and I'm sure in football, and I don't know enough about your sports, but it's probably the same, is certainly younger players, um, and you've alluded to this already, are greedy. And they they have their own vision of the game, which means that they hold onto the ball for much longer than they should. And it is clear that they need to move the ball. Now, there is a balance, and uh, sometimes we think they're maybe a touch too greedy, but they're inevitably players who do not bring in other players into the game, even though it fits in with the way that the team wants to play and has agreed to play. So what do we do to help create less greedy players you dropped out for a few seconds there but i'm pretty sure you uh i I know what the question is yeah so yeah common problem again um i uh i'd have experienced this a lot right and it's a common if anybody and i'm sure there will be irish people but it's it's the same anywhere i mean small villages in england with rugby and soccer teams are going to be quite similar in that, when, particularly when you have a low population, low, low pick, you will ha- tend to have somewhere between one and five guys who really stand out and can dominate. And that can be an issue, right? Now, in a pure practical sense, I play so many team-based and constrained games, almost at times, I feel, to detriment of some of these players in a way, because selfish players... You want some guys who are selfish at times, you know, it's mm, it's, it's, it's a bit of a balance, you know, those, those striker types, Ian Wright types, you know, Alan Shearer types for would be the people that come to my mind that, you know, Messi was incredibly selfish, 
But um, so I constrain games with time on the ball, or so I do two time constraints, either the individual sometimes, if we have a real issue with overplaying the ball. Okay. So we have three seconds in Gaelic football now, three seconds on the ball. Um, and you're just playing 8v8 or 10v10 or whatever. And, you know, it starts improving. Now, it challenges some guys' skills, right? Because they have to adjust. Um, but, you know, with three seconds, you don't even get a chance that much to use skills. And in the Gaelic games terms, I mean, skill is such a, a broad contextual thing. But let's say the hop and the solo are the, the basic skill, the, the possession skills, let's say, in Gaelic football. Um, and where I might then, in tandem with that, or if I had different issues, getting from back to front, let's say, I would put a time constraint on the game. Like once you score or the kick out is kicked, you have 12 seconds to get a shot off. Okay. And what happens invariably is that a kind of a peer coaching, which you know, can actually verge on physical violence at times. Um, emerges where, you know, some guy's overplaying the ball and his teammates start giving out to him. Or I keep blowing the whistle because he's held the ball for four seconds. That's a free the other way. Ball down, end of story. And you will meet challenges at all levels with that. Um, there will be players, sometimes high-level players, who absolutely lose the plot. It is such a challenge to them. Um, because they're used to dominating or they're used to playing in a certain way. So that's a way, that's a method, let's say, of addressing some of those uh, ideas. And, and then the importance, I think, really, that I learned maybe I was overdoing that at times in the past or over-constraining. You do have to let then, so you could play those types of games and maybe play a full bigger game where there's no constraints. So that, that exploration... That, that those those constraints help support the transfer of the principles to the main game, okay? And you will still get some guys dominating the ball, overplaying the ball, stuff like that. But it does work over time, you know? And a lot of it is their own players will challenge them, you know? Because there's an ultimate competitiveness even within the mini games. So if the player um, and this is I'm taking this right out to an extreme here if the player is being greedy um, and what you do is you play games uh, and it emerges from that and uh, eventually they become less greedy when it matters isn't there a case of saying uh, right come here Johnny uh, you're being too greedy you without saying it, you live in fear of me uh, if you're greedy, that's the wrong thing to do. Don't do it again. Um, wouldn't that be just the, the simplest way of doing it? If they actually respect that you have that experience, that this is not going to be good for their development, you say it in some way that they have either such respect for you, fear, whatever it is, that they then change change their minds, as opposed to going through say, uh, two, three, possibly even four months, as we talked about. It takes time for these things to uh, take place. Uh, could you not just give them a piece of information at the start or when it starts to happen too much, which then they have to change their behaviours, and you're just reinforcing that week in, week out? 
as opposed to creating special games to do it? Well, I'm trying to coach the individual within a team environment. Mm. So I'll probably want the ball move fast anyway, right, to score. Because we still want to get better and be competitive and win some games, right? So they'll possibly work in tandem. Uh, what age are we thinking about? Because it does vary. Well, I'm thinking that um, when you're probably um, 16 and above, you yeah. can probably have that conversation quite sensibly and um, you can have a bit of a to and fro over it and uh, off it goes. But when uh, the player is, say, 10, 11, 12, when uh, they've probably got a bit more awareness of the game and they can see how their own actions can have an influence. And normally they see their actions having an influence in terms of, I need to be on the ball more because there are weaker players around me. Yeah. So, again, I'm probably varying into methods a little bit, but you can have, obviously, you can definitely have a conversation with them. Um, I would lean it towards tapping into their empathy and how are you helping your teammates or do you think that Stephen's getting enough of the ball? Like, I, you know, um, I think he could do with more touches. You know, and does does Johnny react to that? I mean, we don't know. Um, sometimes with anybody in any walk of life at any age, sometimes just making them aware. You know, I've taught players are greedy before, right? Adults, good players. Or I thought they, you know, didn't care or whatever the case may be. But a conversation made me realize, you know what? They actually do. I just, it hasn't, they haven't been able to express it or, you know, there was other things expected of them of them in the past. You know, you don't know. I've seen, I know I'm veering off a little bit now, but and I will jump back to it, don't worry. But like I've seen guys afraid to kick with their left foot because of a comment a parent made 15 years earlier. And they just will not go for it. Talented people, players, you know. So, you know, that they're that's what you're dealing with. Like, so it's but burrowing into that when you get the opportunity, right? Not going after it, it's when you get the opportunity, I believe, right? So, you know, you're talking to a 10-year-old, I, I would take the empathetic route to try and uncover or uh, release their empathy. I might even get them to coach a game, like a 3v3, you're going to coach that now. Is there any rules you'd make? Maybe the observation, they might go, well, Stephen never touched the ball. What's the problem there? And then you go, well, how about we put you in now and get Timmy to coach the game? And you see if you can get Stephen more touches, you know, and that's probably an ideal scenario, right? I know there will be more difficult situations than that. You could have parental influence. What do you know about that? Do they think their kid is going to Man United, right? Um, they may well, and they may well have grounds for it. We don't know. Um, but do you need to chat to the parent going, you know, uh, you know, we're really interested in, in, Johnny's development, but you know, when he goes up the levels now and there's better players around, he's really going to need to be able to pass and move a bit more, you know. Um, you know, I'm finding it hard without an actual contextual <laughs> situation, to, but you know, so there, there's no one answer, but it's like figuring out what he'll give you or, or she that will let you into their world and what's motivating them because basically. If we were to narrow it down to one thing, intrinsic motivation is what driving what is driving this, you know. So we need to find that intrinsic motivation. Then we might need to link 
uh, that intrinsic motivation to how we develop even 10 minutes of a training session. That might all it might be for a while. You know, we don't want to change the, the whole thing for one player, but we, we don't need to overdo it at times as well. It's just like open a window to something different to them and see how they respond to it. I think the thing that's coming across, and uh, you've certainly, again, talked about this earlier on, is you've got to understand the player and know the player. And that comes from asking questions. It comes from observations. It comes from finding moments to speak to them which aren't just in front of everybody else. And that's yeah. uh, that's a that's an important role for the coach. And I suppose it leads on to what is going to be my last question because we've got – got we, we've not necessarily kept to the script, which was <laughs> ideal, I think – uh, and there's lots more to ask uh, as well, is that um, given that you you have limited time with the players, I mean, we would like to have lots of time with the players. Um, I suppose my question is, uh, how do you feed back efficiently to a large group of players? Uh, but perhaps the question is, can you feed back efficiently to a large group of players? So what one or the other? Okay. Um like anything, like creating games, constrained games or repetition practices or whatever, there's many methods or roads to success and they will vary with person to person. At, let's talk about adult level and the teams I work with for now and we can, we can discuss the lower ages because this is the easiest, right? Mm-hmm. Um, as much for legal reasons and our communication with youth players is very restricted now outside of through their parents, right? So that's one constraint there. Uh, I do performance reports, right? And I send it out after every game, just a template. The lad send it back to me, filled in a couple of questions, a couple out of tens. How did you prepare for the game? How did you feel you did tactically? How did you feel you did uh, physically or, or psychologically, right? So the, those four questions. Uh, what did you learn? Um, what do you think we were good at? What do we need to work at? Basically, that's not exactly the wording, but and they'll fill it in and send it back. And what that does then is, okay, so on an average group, let's say we use five subs, there'll be 20 guys get back to, or there'll be 20 guys that will have played, right? And I will generally in a good, positive environment, get 17 or 18 back, okay? And one or two will never or will need multiple prompts to come back, (laughs) right? So is that that they're not very techy, right? So again, we're going into the communication, finding out about the person, blah, blah, blah. They just don't like being on WhatsApp. You know what I mean? There could be that, or they don't like reflections. Okay, so that's a big, you know, those players can be the best players. Actually, I found very often they are in the top five players. Um, But with the rest of them, you're creating conversations. And then they've told me this stuff that they have observed, felt, played through the game. And I get an opportunity in some form of 1v1, whether it's through text or I meet them at the next training and we bring it up again. But I have an opportunity to add to that feedback, to uh, elaborate on something, to give them some coaching help, whatever you want to call it. Um, And I've been doing that the last few years, and I think it does help. It's extra work. There's no doubt about it, right? But for me, it's valuable. 
and it totally it totally um, outdoes the like you know maybe a hundred texts within twenty four hours of a game because you might talk to one guy for seven or eight texts each. You know what I mean? So, but I think you get a bit of an insight into how they're looking at the game as well. So I can then tailor my feedback. You know, and this is not about bluffing them, right? Because they see through that very quickly, right? It's it's you know I can tailor my feedback though to what they're seeing. And again, it goes back to meeting where they're at. So in terms of feedback with an adult team, I have found that very useful. Every now and then, we, well, at the start of the year, I actually did one the other night. It was quite delayed just because of my entry in with the team was, was not pre-season. It was quite late. Um, we just did a goal session and I used a one-two for all meeting which is I get them to think about something at subjects or goals or in this case and the principles of play for one minute on their own, two minutes in a pair, four minutes together, and then we open it up. So you have a bit of your own time and then you've some discussions in small groups. I move them around. I don't let the, the groups of friends stay too close together. I mix in management uh, if they're there and all that kind of stuff. And you'll get some feedback there, right? Uh, I wouldn't call it unbelievably high level feedback in ways because sometimes those individual thoughts get drowned out, but at least you get a unified uh, kind of sense of purpose, you know. Um, so they'd be the main methods I'd use. And sometimes you just have to ring someone. And that is still, or have a face to face, but often in a team environment, that's, excuse me, that's hard because. They may not want to do that at the pitch because someone's looking at them, you know. Um, but and some of them don't care about that, <laughs> and some of them will will give feedback in front of the group. Uh, and then, you know, I know you didn't ask this question, but there is a difference in my opinion, and that's between men and women. And I've worked a good bit with uh, female teams and one of the highest level teams in Ireland actually for a year. And they are very different in their feedback approach, I would say, in my experience as well. And you won't get very good group feedback from a female team as fast. So it's, I find it's much better one-to-one, you know. So there are just little variances I use at adult level. Well, I think we could probably delve into uh, feedback as a whole, whole podcast or even probably a book. Yeah. In it yeah. in itself. Um, anyway, I think we've uh, well we've delved into a couple of the questions uh, in some depth, and there's loads more that we were going to talk about, but uh, we may save that for another time. So, Kevin, uh, you you produce a lot of stuff um, on uh, social media and your website, and some great resources as well. So, uh, where can people come to find out more about those things and more about you? Okay, um, my website is strengthandconditioningcork.com uh, and I'm on Twitter and Instagram as movementcoach uh, underscore KM, Kevin Mulcahy, obviously. Um, but I would say the best coaching resource or, you know, block of information or stuff or an insight into how I coach and, and a lot of method type approaches, you know, um, would be design the game uh, Facebook group and you know people can look for design the game and request a, it's a private group but I mean I'll let you in <laughs> um, um, and there there's a lot of 
uh, stuff there. And I've spoke to friends and other coaches who've joined it and said they dip in and out and they take stuff that they like. And there's a lot of stuff there. And, and I think that's the way to do it, really. In, in my own, I, I run a, a coaching course with Gaelic, uh, with GA coaches, um, which is just a, it's almost an experiment in coach education in that instead of having blocks or webinars or workshops in in start of January, which would have been the traditional way that Gaelic Games did it, you know, a cold hall in West Cork in February on a Saturday morning at 10 o'clock where nobody's motivated to be there but have to be there. So I've also created a course where we're every month on the first Monday of the month we, we meet and do a workshop and it's kind of working through. So... There was pre-season testing, you know, setting up your principles of play and all these kind of things month to month. And the feedback so far is that the coaches like it because we do something, we go away, we try A, B and C, we don't like that, I like that, I like that. And, and actually the, the interaction between the coaches themselves is, is more powerful than with me, in fact. I think I'm presenting and giving ideas, but they start talking, it's more real life, you know. So I think Design the Game, or sorry, that course came out of Design the Game and the feedback from coaches on that. Um, so that, that, I think, as a resource, that's by far the, the best resource I have. Yeah, and I would definitely recommend that. And uh, one of the things that um, this podcast didn't allow you to do was to reach back to your whiteboard to illustrate uh, what things uh, and how things happening happen. And I, I know that that's a... Coaches find that a really useful way to uh, take in the information. So, anyway, Kevin, thank you very much for uh, those insights and uh, fielding some um, interesting questions. Well, interesting for me anyway. Um, and w- we would love to have you back on sometime again. Um, so thanks again for your time. That's great. Thanks for having me on, Dan. And I, I enjoyed it. Good. Good. Well, you smiled some of the time, I know. well quite a lot of the time actually um so thank you very much everyone for listening if you want to find out more about kevin and uh, all the sites and social media areas then the links will be in the show notes if you want to find out more about this podcast then go over to rugbycoachweekly.net and click on the podcast button thank you all for listening and we will speak with you all soon bye-bye Thanks for listening to Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast. If you want to hear more podcasts, head over to rugbycoachweekly.net and click on the Blogs tab to catch up on any episodes you've missed. We look forward to speaking to you again soon with more insights from coaches and experts from the world of rugby, sport, and learning.